the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hi, Neville. Hey, Alna. It's another The Science Inside Week. Yes, it is. It's always good to be with you on Vow FM, on the podcast, on streaming. One hour in the week where we look at all things science. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebohang Madisha. So recently, if you're a South African with wheels, you know, <laughs> you have been crying about this, that recently petrol has been on the rise with one of the highest increases in, you know, recent time. It was over one rand per litre up. And you're... I don't know about you, but it hit me right in the field. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't have a car, but I mean, my dad is actively going out to find cheap uh, place, places where he can refill the tanks. And it's just like, uh, he's never done this before. He's never been that concerned about petrol. So I'm guessing it's really, really bad. Yeah, when I had to to pay my first full tank after, um, after the increase, I, I did... Yo. It was painful. Yeah, my, my wallet my wallet had a little cry on the side <laughs> there. But you know what, petrol, it's a normal part of our lives. We kind of can't really avoid it. That's always what it feels like, right? Um, but I don't know about you. Do you ever think about what makes up our fuel mix? Do you ever personally think about how much fossil fuels your existence is using? I mean, it's not something I consider in extensiveness but like I mean I'm just guessing of like a mixture of gases and energy most likely from coal yeah that's one of the main things you probably use and then petrol right as personally but also as 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 a country and as a world but there has been a very strong drive recently just in the last week against fossil fuels like your petrols and your gases and this is because the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that's the IPCC has issued a very strong statement reporting that the coal-fired electricity that we have been using in some parts of the world and just fossil fuel must end by 2050 following the estimations of the rise in the global climate change um, by 1.5 uh, centigrade. So it's basically a very urgent call for um, for a change in phasing out in fossil fuels because what is um, what we have as our sort of carbon budget, <laughs> that's what they call it, so like mm-hmm. how much carbon we as the earth can use and, and still mitigate climate change, we're flying through it very quickly and this UN report is a big eye-opener. So we definitely need to start cutting costs on our coal budget. (laughs) And this coal might just come to harm us, really, the way I'm hearing it. In a way, yes. And I think it's so much something that everybody is just used to. Mm. We're just used to petrol. We're just used to coal. And, you know, it is nonetheless a very serious risk to our, um, our livelihoods, our health. When we think global warming has so many effects and it is it is something that really has to change so obviously there are other things that you can use for energy and fuel production um but you know what we can talk about say um say solar energy we can talk about those kinds of things but today on the show we're bringing it 
down to just fossil fuels in the sense of petrol because that is something that most of us use every day whether we're driving and owning the car or not Definitely. right so on the show today we said hey let's think about some alternatives like electric cars what do you think about electric cars level i mean i've always seen them in movies i guess they're electric the futuristic cars but the only thing is the energy that we're using for the electric cars is the pot we're just like ah oh, this could be iffy in a real sense that is mm. so i mean it's an interesting uh, uh, alternative to use and it is definitely much better than petrol because we're just paying for electricity and not in, in, like increasing fuel hikes every two weeks or something. Yeah, I th- I like that you bring that up because electric vehicles are sometimes lauded as this like fix all solution. Mm. But of course, that electricity is also coming from somewhere, and if it's not clean e- electricity, then what's the point? Exactly. In a sense. <laughs> so later in the show, we will be talking to an electric car manufacturer in South Africa. Um, we have him live in studio with us and we're going to be asking him some of those tough questions we also have our unsigned which is always fun yes and it is about chickens <laughs> <laughs> yes guys we keep it exciting out here we're going to be talking about the little chick- the little chickens out there and some of you possibly just are going to have that for dinner so going to chat about your dinner tonight <laughs> <laughs> but not in the culinary sense no no Mm-mm, in the animal sense yes okay that's in our unscience and then later in the show we find out whether hydrogen fuel cells could be the answer when it comes to alternative ways of powering our cars i'm really excited about the show level because i i think we should be looking towards this future actively and not just saying oh this is how it's always been. That Never is going to change. Because, I mean, climate change is a real thing and we need to start looking at alternative ways to save our planet, essentially. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we can always get contact from you guys. Well, you can always contact us, rather, on our social media, on Facebook as VowFM. And you can also tweet us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. I would love some tweets today about whether you would buy an electric vehicle. What are your questions? How Would much you do is it? it mm. That's a big question. It is a big question. <laughs> and spoiler alert, it's a big number. Oh. <laughs> we will get into that, <laughs> unfortunately, later. The podcast will be up on iTunes as the Science Inside as every single week, as well as our website, vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. And if you want to share your voice notes with us, you can contact us on our WhatsApp line at 084-078-4912. So every week before we get into our stories, we just take a little bit of a look at what's happening in the science news that that's up next. This week's Science Headline. Lebo, what do you have for us? Today, Alna, I have a story that is another remarkable breakthrough in science. This is Senegal's continuous struggle with trachoma. The story is from Al Jazeera News. Now, the world's leading cause of blindness, trachoma, has affected more than 200 million people worldwide, mostly sub-Saharan Africans. Even though there are measures taken to try to prevent the spreading of trachoma, Senegal is struggling to contain this disease, up till now, of course. Mm-hmm. Trachoma, simply put, is an infectious disease which causes a breakdown of the eye surface. Now, recently, there's been a way of treating this once irreversible cause of blindness. 
this disease is easily preventable. Must like this is something I must put out there. It's actually really easy to prevent this disease. But factors such as not having access to clean water and sanitation make it really difficult to contain it in specifically marginalized communities around the world. Oh, especially if you're saying it's an infectious disease. Mm. Then hygiene, as simple as it might seem to you and me, who most days will probably have soap and water... That doesn't count for everyone. It's it's a luxury in exactly. some senses. Soap in itself. Mm. People struggle to get water. Yeah. So you mentioned it briefly, but tell us a little bit more about what exactly does trachoma mean. Okay, let me break it down for you here. Now, trachoma is a disease caused by a bacteria known as Bacterium chlamydia trachomiatis. Trachoma can be spread through direct personal contact, shared towels and cloths. As we mentioned, it's an infectious disease. And it can even be spread through flies that have come into contact with the eyes or nose of an infected person. Oof. Yeah, so you actually don't know which fly to swat now. Like All of them <laughs> is the answer to that question. Definitely, just swat them all out of your way. But now the trouble comes when this infection is left untreated a number of times. So you keep on getting this infection and you just let it fester in your eye. This can cause severe scarring in the inside of the eyelid and can cause the eyelashes to scratch the cornea. This already sounds painful. Mm. And a patient whose journey was followed throughout this whole treatment process further explained that with every blink, his eye got more and more painful. As if that wasn't enough, the possibility of blindness is also a real possibility that could follow this. Sure. And now, what exactly have they done treatment-wise to cure this disease? I like what they did, actually, in Senegal. They trained individuals, just regular people who are not medical practitioners by profession, to perform this, this treatment. Now, the procedure treats those with symptoms of trachoma. And the procedure is performed by making a small incision in the eyelid in order to get rid of the disease. This sounds fairly simple, but I'm pretty sure it's quite delicate because mm. you're dealing with the eyelid it's a very sensitive Absolutely. part of the body mm. now there are possibilities of bleeding and getting permanent scarring of the eye but patients feel like regaining their eyesight is a much greater gain than just a scar or possibilities of bleeding absolutely but label you were saying that this is particularly a problem in marginalized communities communities that don't have a lot of resources or access to you know, you know all kinds of support running water those kinds of things mm. can they really afford this kind of treatment even if it's done by a local person and to that question i have a really good answer yes they can the Senegalese government was so determined to get rid of trachoma that they decided to just offer this treatment to everyone for free. So in a situation where there are a lot of kids who are getting infected mm. with trachoma and are seen as burdens and end up begging, this is a great thing for them because now they can actually go to school and grow and become something in life, greater than just beggars on the side of the street. And for the patient who I mentioned earlier, his life got changed in 10 minutes this procedure takes 10 minutes. The cutting of the incision in the eye takes 10 minutes. And after that, 58 years of his suffering came to an end. And he didn't have to have someone helping him with maybe brushing his teeth or getting from point A to point B. So this is quite a remarkable breakthrough.
Hmm. Especially with something that is preventable. Mm. You should, I know it doesn't work that way, but it always feels to me intuitively that if something can be preventable from, from the start, then, then the cure should also be somehow within reach. Yes, definitely. So it's great to know that the Senegalese government is behind this. Um, and I hope that other governments, including our own, are supporting this if, yes, if there are actually. cases um, of this in South Africa. Mm, so, Alna, what do you have for us today? <laughs> so, do you remember that there was a total solar eclipse last year in North America? So, we didn't have it here, but it was a big deal in, in the States. Yeah, I remember that. So, there was a lot of noise about it, but not by everyone, specifically oh. bees. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, some research has just been released by the Entomological Society of America and the University of Missouri, and the title is so great. I love it. Pollination on the dark side. <laughs> Acoustic monitoring reveals impacts of a total solar eclipse on flight behavior and activity schedule of foraging bees. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so they just recorded bees during the eclipse. Yes, basically. So like they just went to the beehives like, okay, I'm just going to put a microphone here. Do your thing, guys. Basically. <laughs> so they had lots of these tiny little microphones as well as temperature sensors. And they put them around flowers in 16 locations along the path of the eclipse, including in the state of Oregon, Idaho, and Missouri. And the really, it's actually very cool because the researchers had just set up this whole system previously to help them track bee pollination. So it came at just the right time. They could use it for this. So here's a very cool thing about this study. They had the help of over four. 400 citizen scientists, researchers, and a lot of school kids who helped record and analyze the data. And the kids were almost exactly as accurate with the science as the researchers. Oh, wow. So what did they find? Like, what did the bees do during this eclipse? Did they just fly around confused and all... Or yeah, just get all crazy, yeah. like crazy buzzes. No, actually quite the opposite. So there's been some indications before that animals, including bees and birds, slow down or become quieter during eclipses. And the researchers saw that as expected, that just before they sort of slowed down, it was almost as if the bees were flying back to their nests like they would at sunset. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. But here's what the researchers didn't expect. In the moments of the actual totality, so where where the sun was completely covered, shush, total silence, complete silence, just gone. No more, no more bees. Not like, a. They were like lights out. Yes, everybody go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. So in um, and and we're just talking a few minutes here. Oh wow! And there was a single outlier bee buzz. At all of the locations, only one bee was There's always that one guy. There's always that one guy who just is misled or is just lost. Yeah, I don't know what he was doing. Or she went, yeah. So there was just one single bee. But basically, this means that the bees were reacting to the eclipse quite strongly, almost as if it's nighttime, even though it was slowing down and, and passed quite quickly. Mm. And it's indicating that they aren't... Um, evolutionarily adapted to an eclipse. So even though eclipses have happened over thousands and assumingly millions of years, 
bees don't know what to do with it and just all just go to sleep for those few minutes try to go home and then when the sun came back out they start buzzing again that's so cute like oh my gosh the sun is go okay everybody go home go home guys the sun is going then the sun comes back up they're like oh okay happy day let's go out again guys (laughs) yeah i still i think it's very great that um so many citizen scientists got to be a part of this that the system works i'm not entirely sure it's adding to my life to know that bees don't i I don't know what the wider scientific implications are here but it is cool it's it's uh, it's cool in the sense that this particular eclipse has seen far more scientific interest than other eclipses. That is true. So we may find out something um, from from one of the other uh, batches of scientific research around this. But for now, now you know, bees, very cute, nice buzzes, not that clever in an eclipse. <laughs> so we've just given you a little bit of an update from the science world. But after the break, we find out whether powering your car with electricity is the answer to climate change and the fossil fuel problem. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Alna Schertz. And welcome back. I'm Lebo still with you here. Welcome back to it. As already mentioned earlier, in light of the recent fuel hikes, we'll be looking at an alternative fuel source for vehicles, which is electricity. I'm sure we've heard about Tesla and Elon Musk and Nissan and the Leaf by Nissan and the Jewel by Optimum Energy. I've got to say, I am one of those people. I'm one of those people who would love a Tesla. Yeah, I think everyone would love a Tesla. It's just way out of everyone's budget. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. You you need to oh, you need you, to know Ellen for such things. <laughs> She'll give it to you for free. Or Elon. <laughs> or Elon. Yeah. So electric cars are one big option for avoiding petrol. I think that's where a lot of people's minds go to. They think, okay, let's do a hybrid car. Let's do an electric vehicle. And we're going to speak to somebody in a second who knows all about it from the business and the scientific side. But first, we thought we'd just get some other opinions. So here's the opinion of one listener on this. Electric cars are cars that function mainly on electricity or batteries instead of standard petroleum. Right now, the most renowned cars that function in this manner are Tesla, which was found by Elon Musk, or there are two BMW models that are found that function on electricity namely the the bmw i8 and the bmw i3 i wouldn't say we're ready for electric cars yet given that most of the world is still dependent on petroleum but within 10 or 15 years we could be given the fact that we're running out of oil stores which provide petroleum Yes, and tonight in studio we are joined by the Managing Director of Grid Cars, which is an an independent authority on electric vehicle charging service equipment, or EVSE. With more than 100 electric vehicle charge charge points installed across South Africa, Grid Cars continues to play a leading role in building the electric vehicles industry in South Africa. 
Winston, thank you so much for joining us on the Science Inside. It is, in fact, not your very first time with us. A few years <laughs> ago, <laughs> I got the chance to drive one of your vehicles um, on the show. And it's great to have you back because this is such a continued conversation. And I think yes, as, sure. as the years carry on... I'm sure that every time we speak to you, the industry will already have opened up just a little bit more for this idea of EVs. I think the industry is very open to this idea at this stage, so especially with the petrol price where it is today. <laughs> are you saying a lot of people are scared and they come running to you? <laughs> and I'm assuming you drove here to studio today in your electric vehicle? I did, um, in BMW i3, so... <laughs> Good, good. So, uh, just for the listeners who don't know Winston and Grid Cars, they are known for producing prototypes um, through your electric vehicle project, of course. And I wonder if you can explain to us, first of all, how do you build an electric vehicle prototype or an electric vehicle? What exactly is it? So I think maybe just to clarify one issue, and that is we have been working on prototypes in the past, but for the last year we've decided to focus entirely on building the infrastructure, mm -hmm. so really preparing the groundwork for where the electric vehicle industry would go and um, making sure that the environment is ready, that, that people can stop these comments, because you often hear people say, and so what if you want to drive to Cape Town? And, you know, the way we'll, we answer that now is to say, well, drive to Cape Town, what's wrong? <laughs> Don't you know that the charging point's all the way there? So the idea is really to try and ensure that we that we break that stereotype that charging technology is not available or that it's hard to charge the cars. Um, you know, really people driving electric vehicles all have maps. They can see exactly where the charge points are. There's no mystery for them. Um, I think that mystery typically is with people who are not driving electric vehicles because they don't know about these secret little websites we have. Especially because anybody um, can see petrol stations everywhere. It's pretty obvious. But a charging station for an electric vehicle is often not half as obvious. It's That's just sort of very, very true. Um, you know, we often find people that that would say, "Oh, we haven't seen any infrastructure," but then you say, "What does it look like?" And they've got a blank stare. <laughs> so, so you're hundred percent right. And you know, you're going to see a lot more of it now in places like shopping centres, um, various places along the routes. You will see it um, today. There's about 100 charge points in South Africa, or just over 100. Um, that will be at least another 50 um, within the next two months. Nice. So it, it, the, it's expanding very, very quickly. Um, the new ones that have been expanded are all um, fast chargers, so we were able to fully charge a car in about 20 minutes um, for the existing vehicles and for the newer cars coming in that have much bigger batteries, like the Tesla, if they ever get to come into South Africa, um, they would be taking probably an hour to an hour and a half um, to a full charge. See, now I have a question with those kind of things because now you have to integrate this technology into the society that, are, that already exists. So where we're used to going to a petrol station, getting our tanks filled up and then eating or something, what do you do while you're waiting for, say, your, your Tesla to charge? So I think the, the first thing is, you just said it, you're going to go to a fill-in station and you're going to go and have something to eat or drink or have a meeting, a business meeting. So um, it's the same structure. It's the same structure, yeah. Nothing will really change. The only difference is that these petrol stations or, let's say, these fuel stations or energy stations are going to be everywhere. They're going to be in shopping centers or business parks. Oh, I see. When you go and visit somebody, I'm here for an hour this evening and my car is standing downstairs but not charging. So if mm -hmm. there was a charge point there, I would have plugged it in. And by the time I leave to 
go home, there'd be an extra 30 or 40 kilometres in that, which is enough to get back to Pretoria. And I'm assuming you can charge at home also overnight. You absolutely can charge at home. Normally, the charging rates at home are a little bit slower just because your home network is, is not as strong in terms of what you have available. Your house is typically sized to cater for your house, not necessarily yes. a house and a car. Mm. Um, but I think one of the things you were talking about is, you know, or you can see some doubt that you're not quite sure where it's mm. going to go. But what's quite <laughs> important is that if you look at the cost of electricity for per kilometer is about one fifth of the cost of petrol. Wow. So, wow. That's the key. <laughs> and that's what happens is that when you realize that you suddenly realize, wait a minute, that 3000 rand a month I'm paying for petrol suddenly becomes maybe 400 rand a month or 500 rand a month. And I've got two and a half thousand rand more disposable income that I could use maybe. And in this case to pay for a more expensive car, because that's what would happen with the electric mm. That actually covers so some ground. Cause I was going to say, how do you convince <laughs> someone who already has a car? Yes. They're crying about petrol hikes, but they're like, I already have a car. Now you have to convince me to get rid of this one and go for the electric car. And they're going to be like, well, it costs a fifth of what you're paying now it's yeah. like okay i'm dumping it yeah <laughs> no, absolutely and you know if you if you look at when electric cars let's say when electric cars get to price parity on fossil fuel cars which we expect them to be within the next three or four years oh. so then the capital cost will be at price parity but the fuel price is still massively cheaper of course if you install things like solar when, and we find that in most of the cases where we do some charge point installations we're also installing solar and when you do a solar installation then that cost can be radically lower and of course it fixes it for the next 20 years for you because you've invested now in doing something like that mm. so um, when you start looking at these discounted or these lower costs it really really makes a difference things like maintenance the international averages at this stage are between 12 and 15 times cheaper for maintenance of your vehicle and simple electric motors don't break yeah. When last when last did you fix your fridge motor? Oh wow! You, you know, compared to your lawnmower, for example, you know your lawnmower goes in at least once a year to get fixed, or twice a year, depending on where it is. If it's a petrol lawnmower, but if you've got an electric fridge, just never. Mm. You know, it can run for twenty years without a problem. So tell us. On the scientific side, let's talk hardware. What exactly is under the hood? How does an electric um, motor work? So I, I suppose the main thing is that there's an electric motor instead of a petrol motor. Um, the thing about it is that it's, it's a lot smaller. So if I had a 100 kilowatt system, which is a decent um, performance vehicle, and I put an electric motor in, it would be about a third of the size of the petrol motor in the physical, uh, physical dimensions. The motor has what we call a controller, so it's basically... It, it's the mechanism that's used to turn the motor efficiently so that it's using the least amount of energy to get the most amount of torque. Um, and beyond that, you've got to have a battery. And batteries have battery management systems and all sorts of safety devices around them. Just because they are relatively... Um, well, they're powerful pieces of equipment and they've got to be respected and managed because it's very, very high current. You want to make sure that, that you understand if something is going wrong with that battery that you can stop and have it fixed or have it mm -hmm. repaired. So there's those sort of management systems. And, and at the end of the day, that's about it. It's not much more complex than that. Mm. And this isn't a battery like the one you would see in my car when you jump started. No, not <laughs> quite. Um, the, the first um, electric vehicle that I drove was one that I'd converted and that had batteries like the one in your car so a little 12 volt battery but it had 28 of them wow so weighed 400 kilos but 
It was a, sm- it was a small um, bantam, you know, and we just put the batteries in the back, so it worked like a bomb. <laughs> but but at the end of the day, yeah, it's much, much better technology. If you look at the energy density difference between the battery that's in your car and the battery that would go into an electric vehicle, it's the order of four to five times more dense. So we get four to five times more energy in the same amount of weight and space. And so that means the batteries are in a lot smaller, although that said, still pretty big. Um, you know, most electric vehicles, you'll find that at least a big percentage of the weight of the vehicle, so 20% of the weight of the vehicle is the battery. In fact, if you look at any of the commercial cars and you just Google electric car chassis, what you're going to see is that the entire base of the vehicle is batteries. The whole bottom of the car is wow. batteries. So from the front wheels to the back wheels is a, is a battery pack. And, and, those, and that's needed in order to give you the sort of range that you want out of an electric vehicle. And since they're so important, what, uh, what quality are we at in terms of making sure that those batteries are the best they can be for this particular use? For instance, um, somebody was saying to me recently um, around those quick charges often draining a battery and not being too great for its health. So where are we quality-wise? So... In general, the quick charges are definitely not causing any problems with the batteries. Um, and the reason I say that is because the batteries are worked in what we call a C rating. So it's the rate at which it, it's comfortable being filled or emptied, and it's the rate at which we rate the battery. So if somebody says to you, this battery has got 3,000 cycles with it, it's rated at what we would call the C rating of that battery. So it's going to get 3,000 if you use it like this. And those numbers are typically, we well, we well within that in what a quick charge is. Now, there are people who talk and say, oh, but Monday we were able to charge a car in two minutes not likely and the reason is quite simple it you still got to pass the same amount of energy in so what's going to happen is you the the rate at which you push it becomes so high you'd need to have 200 megawatts or something silly like that if you wanted to charge that battery in a very short time so I think we'll see reasonable times and we'll see reasonable improvements on that. Um, most batteries today are quite comfortable with being fully charged or discharged in about half an hour to an hour. Mm-hmm. So, so from that perspective, if we can deliver the energy, we can, we can quite comfortably move those batteries or charge the batteries like that. Um, from a, a technology point of view, Batteries are changing all the time. Um, you can just look at uh, something like the BMW, where they had a 60 amp hour battery two years ago. Then they came out with a, a 90 amp hour battery, and now in the next month or two, they'll be releasing a 120 amp hour battery. That's literally 50% improvement, 50% improvement. Well, 50%, 33%, if you look at the, the overall. So it's a, it's a real radical improvement in maybe a year and a half, two years each time. So we're seeing radical drives in these batteries. Um, it's not unreasonable to expect that within the next 10 years, we could see ranges of 800 kilometers on a battery. Mm. So and that is, that is really great because that ha- has historically been the number one criticism. Oh, electric vehicles, um, one of the main criticisms, um, you know, they don't, they don't have the range. Yeah. Um, I think that if I can just respond to that, because I think I think it's unreasonable in the sense that we look and we say it must have a range of 600 kilometres. For what? How many people drive 600 kilometres in a day? Very, very few. You know, um, I drive a lot, and today, which was exceptional, I've been to Joburg twice, and. That's just under 200 kilometers. Mm. And I did that with an electric vehicle with a single fast charge in the middle. So I drove, drove through, went back to Pretoria, stopped at a fast charger, took about 30 minutes, and back to Johannesburg without a problem. So 
but at the end of the day, what we don't want to be doing is saying, well, we're measuring an electric vehicle in the same way that we measured a petrol car. Now, a petrol car, it's uncomfortable to go and fill the car up. You've got to go to a different place, find this petrol station. There's not great services at petrol stations, maybe <laughs> an overpriced shop or something like that. But at the end of the day, this is the place we've got to go, and we have to make a conscious decision to go and fill up our cars. You don't do that with, petrol, with electric cars. What happens is every time you stop it, you plug it in. Plug it in at home, plug it in at work, plug it in at the radio station that you're visiting. Um, <laughs> sorry, that didn't happen. <laughs> so, we'll take that dig. <laughs> so at the end of the day, whenever you get into your car, it's typically full. And based on that, you really need to look at what makes sense. Because if I've got a battery that can, that can do 600 kilometers, and let's say that battery costs 300,000 Rand in an, a relatively expensive car. So I've got a 600 kilometer battery that costs 300,000 Rand. If I said to you, I can give you a battery for 200 kilometers only, you might say, oh, no, I want six, but I can drop the price of the car by 200,000. We've got to think. We, and the more we think, we've got to think that electric vehicles need to be designed for what you do. Mm-hmm. If your daily commute or if my daily commute was only 20 or 30 kilometers and I was doing that 90% of the time, I'd be totally happy with a car that had a range of 40 kilometers because it's going to have the cheapest battery in it. It's going to be the lightest car, so it'll use less energy while it's driving. That's true. Okay, every single aspect of that vehicle becomes optimized. And I think we've got to stop trying to think that this has to be the solution to everything. We've got to start to see more optimized solutions that are really driving where that solution can be. Hmm. One last question for you, Winston. Um, we've been talking on the show today about fossil fuels, and of course, that is why a lot of people um, look towards EVs. But what about um, the fact that in South Africa still a lot of our electricity isn't entirely clean? So even though I can control my car, and you did mention solar previously, so I'm assuming your answer will go there. But um, I'm sure a lot of people counter you and say, oh, but load shedding. Oh, but if it doesn't make a difference if ESCOM is using coal anyway. Yeah. So I think, again, let's get real. All right. So firstly, load shedding is an hour or two a day. It's not an entire day. So if it happens to be, you know, one hour out of the eight hours that you're charging your car at night, so what? That's not a big deal. Um, if we start looking at um, the, the the mix, so the carbon mix that we see within our, within our electricity. So we've got relatively dirty electricity in the country. We've also got relatively dirty fuel. And, but... Kilometer for kilometer, and that's what we have to look at. Forget about all the other numbers you might hear. Kilometer for kilometer, electric cars with the dirtiest, well, with the electric car with the cleanest petrol versus the dirtiest electricity will be three times cleaner, mm-hmm. three times less emissions. Mm-hmm. And it's just because of the efficiency of the motor. If you look at a petrol motor, the efficiency is between 15 and 20%. So you've got a really inefficient system that most of the work in that engine is making heat, noise, poisonous gases. It actually takes a lot of petrol to make poisonous gases. Um, and all of the other emissions that we have, as opposed to an electric motor, so remember, I said 15 to 20% efficiency. In the electric motor, we're talking 90 plus percentage. On some of the motors that we see in um, test cars, like the solar challenge cars or solar powered cars, 98% efficiency. So the efficiencies are right up there. And because of that, they're so much cleaner when, they, when they're using, even if they're using electricity made from, um, from coal. That said, most people I know don't make the electricity from coal, they use um, solar. 
So and so the whole argument just falls to pieces if you try to think the, the stats are in the favor absolutely of electric vehicles. It really doesn't matter how you look at it. And that's not even taking into account the health concerns that are caused by um, these toxic gases coming out the back of petrol vehicles. Mm. We've been speaking to Winston Yodan from Good Cars, getting us all ready and excited <laughs> to one day buy an electric vehicle, hopefully not too far away. Teslas? Oh, <laughs> Science Inside branded Teslas. I can't wait for the day. Oh, <laughs> there's, many, there's many other brands before we see Tesla in this country. Get used to it. And, they, and they're just as good. Um, I can assure you both Jaguar and Audi are bringing vehicles into the country. I've seen, I've driven the new Jaguar. It's an incredible vehicle. It'll out-accelerate the Tesla. It's a better car in every way. So at the end of the day, and it's not, I think Jaguar's got a great brand, but at the end of the day, what I'm saying is that all the manufacturers who've got years and years and years experience building cars are coming into this game. So, you know, Tesla, still a great brand. It's still going to be there, but watch out for when we, all the other vehicles on the road. <laughs> Later on in the show we will be getting back to the science of cars, particularly ones that don't use petrol. But first let's take a break with our unscience in a minute. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome back to the show. We've just had a really great chat with Winston Yodan from Good Cars. But now, first level, it's unscience time. Yes, always keeping it weird and unusual here. Our unscience today was produced by Bridget Lepere and the music is from a... Oof. Where is it now? I've, I've also <laughs> lost that music, but yes, we do. We do have some music uh, from Carolyn Smith and um, from Macquarie University, as well as Orange Sounds. Let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Now, before we dive into this whole unscience thing today, I just want to know how many languages you can speak, Elna. I can speak four. Oh wow, that's impressive! Well, three and a half. My French <laughs> don't don't test me on it. Oh okay, no, I don't know French, so I won't be able. Okay, I'm not good at French either, so I won't be able to test you. Don't worry. Okay, so now, do you know about foul talk? So, like obscene things that we're not allowed to say on radio. That kind of foul talk. No, 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 no. I wouldn't bring that up here because we're not allowed to, you know, it's yes. just, it wouldn't make sense. No, I mean literally speak or understand the language of fowls or like chickens. Um, the language of chickens, Lebo. I, why do I feel like this topic is about to go cuckoo just in a second? Okay, sorry, person who doesn't know foul language. Now you speak all sarcastic bird talk. Anyway, uh, the University of Georgia and Georgia Institutes of Technology has had over the past five years collaborated with engineers and poultry scientists to help farmers make better use of information hidden in chicken chatter. Okay. That's intriguing. So why are they studying the language of birds? Surely not to understand the gossip. <laughs> I'm sure not. Even though that would be pretty interesting. What do birds really think of us? Are, and you, are you thinking of that movie Chicken Run? <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I mean, that, that sounds interesting. But according to farm owner 
Kevin Mitchell, chickens are natural chatterboxes. And obviously he would know, judging from his vast experience of overseeing about a million birds on Wilcox Farms properties in Washington and Oregon in the USA. They are looking at using artificial intelligence to translate foul chit-chat to improving farming. Imagine that. Listen to the chickens. It makes sense, though. Listen to the chickens to to improve your farming. <laughs> you know, like, if you want to make better chickens, listen to what the chickens are saying, you know? You sound very convinced. I'm not saying <laughs> yes. Anyway, Mitchell says that chickens have patterns of speech that reveal a lot about their overall well-being. He says that they are usually the no- noisiest in the morning and with their hearty strings of clucks. These boisterous clucks in the morning, what exactly are they telling him? Okay, so... Except feed me, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we had chickens at home. So every time we heard them in the morning, it's like, okay, throw corn at them. <laughs> get them out of the way. <laughs> but anyway, that would indicate that they were healthy and happy. And in the evening, when they're preparing to roost, Kevin says that they are much mellower, cooing softly, that is. And he adds that when a hen lays an egg, it celebrates with a series of destroying clucks uh, culminating in a loud caca at the end of each series of clucks. <laughs> yeah, I didn't good. I didn't do a good impression of that. <laughs> now, uh, if they detect a predator uh, on the loose, they produce short, high high pitched shrieks. They repre- they ooh, excuse moi. You know, I'm just getting influenced by the chicken the chatter. Like yeah. I'm out here, like. Anyway, they so if they see a predator on the loose, they produce short, high-pitched shrieks, and the repetitive clucking associated with the chickens is in fact a ground predator alarm call. Okay. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, no, chickens are they they actually special little animals. They have their own little language going on. Anyway, and this is the sound that they make when they are in distress. The one that we just heard now. Oh, okay, that does sound distressed yeah. to me. That <laughs> does not sound like a happy chicken. But, Lebo, okay, I think I'm understanding you now that obviously a chicken would make different kinds of sounds, but how do they even know that that is what is happening to these chickens? How did they find this out? So, Georgia Tech research engineer Wayne Dale published a series of studies between 2014 and 2016. He and his colleagues exposed groups of 6 to 12 broiler chickens to moderately stressful situations such as high temperatures, increased ammonia levels in the air, and mild viral infections. Thereafter, they recorded the vocalized distress with standard USB microphones. How are we doing on sound, guys? Is it still going in the press? Okay. (laughs) They then fed the audio into a machine learning program, training it to recognize the difference between the sounds of a content and a distressed chicken. Okay, so apart from eavesdropping, what else can these machines help us learn about chickens? So far, the software can detect when the chickens are uncomfortable due to heat stress as well as identify their real sound. The soft gurgling produced when mucus from the respiratory infections clog its airway with almost perfect accuracy. Okay. 
So Dale and his team are in the process of learning the changes in frequency of the sounds and the level of loudness that the machines can pick up on. And biologists are learning, uh, biologists and learning experts on chickens' vocalizations at Mer- Mercury University in Australia, Caroline Smith says, although the studies published so far are small and primarily they are a neat proof of concept, but adds that it is important to find new ways of monitoring health of, of the chickens. Okay, well, I guess there is a need to then monitor um, monitor them, them better because, um, you know... It's actually a little bit strange. The chickens have been around so long, around humans. We farmed them for ages, but still most people, when they think of chickens, let's be honest, it's probably, your dinner. probably <laughs> think of lemon her- and herb or peri-peri. Like that's hey. where, the thinking, where the thinking is going. <laughs> so, yeah, the only relationship we have really as humans with chickens is the come hither so I may deep fry thee kind of thing. But, you know, according to people who actually study these birds, such as Nicholas and Elise Colas at the University of California, this is not the case. Now, between the 1950s and 1980s, they catalogued more than 24 distinct chicken calls and their probable meanings. So they decoded the chicken language. And based on, this was all based on careful observations. It was not until the 1990s that researchers such as Chris Evans began controlled experiments to investigate the functions of these calls. Now, Chris uh, Evans and Smith, another advisor, one of his advisors, that is, and other scientists have discovered chicken communication is far more complex than previously realized. Wow, Lebo, I, we've got to leave it there, but I am so surprised that people have spent so much time thinking about about chicken clucks and cacaws, but if it can help them farm better and understand the animals better, okay. Do your thing. It's unusual, <laughs> it's unlikely, it is unscience. We'll be back with the show in a second. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome to the show. You're still listening to The Science Inside and remember you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as VowFM using the hashtag Science Inside. Now, today on the show, we are looking at some alternatives to petrol-based cars. Given that it's transport month, there's been petrol hikes, and the UN is saying anew we have to bring down the fossil fuel use. Now, Elna, we need we need to do better. Yes, and earlier on the show, we heard about electric vehicles that are fueled by batteries. That's definitely where a lot of people's minds are going. But there is a slightly less well-known option. It's called hydrogen fuel cell cars. So it's still an electric motor, but the juice is different. I went to the Integrated Energy Research Center at the CSIR. That's the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. We will get into how this works in the car in a second and if it all works. But let's start in their lab with some fun to see how they test these cells. I'm here with researcher Kolile Fuko. So this is where we're doing all our tests. It could almost fit in my hand. It's about as big yeah. as yeah. like a jar of peanut butter. Yeah, we have to upscale them after because this is just a lab scale. 
All right. So there are other uh, big uh, instruments that we, we call a test rig. So the fuel cell in my car would be much bigger than this one, but this is just the test. It has two sides. The one is red, the one is blue. In the middle, there's sort of a dark hard block and lots of electrical wires added. And you're now holding a little black square. Yeah. And this is our catalyst. It's, a, it's our catalyst, yes. Yeah. It constitutes of a cathode and the materials. So we have different materials on both sides. And in the middle, we have what we call a membrane is sort of our solution or electrolyte. So it helps carry electrons between the two uh, cathode and your anode, the two catalysts. So, and then we sandwich between two conducting plates. So let's pretend this were my car for a second. Is this tube where the hydrogen would go in? Yes. And then at the top of our block, there's a, a red and a black cable, which looks quite familiar to anybody who's ever had to jumpstart a car. Very typical yeah. of a battery. And that's, of course, where our electricity would go out to my electric motor. That's true. That's, that's definitely true. Okay, what exactly is going on there, Alda? So that's just in uh, in the lab, but let's get more into the chemistry of what would happen in your car. Here I am with Dr. Mkurumate. When we talk about hydrogen fuel cell, we can go back to what came to be known as a hydrogen economy. A fuel cell, some people take it as uh, a battery or something that generates electricity. So a fuel cell would have a catalyst that uh, is going to enable a reaction. So we have different types of fuel cells. Some are called proton exchange membrane fuel cell, where you would find that on entry, hydrogen is split into protons and then electrons. Electrons would take a certain path. Hydrogen goes through an exchange membrane and then in the end you're having electricity with uh, the byproducts being water. That's what happens inside the fuel cell. Hydrogen goes in, excess water goes out and of course electricity which then runs uh, the electric motor much like other electric vehicles. Okay, I think the one thing here is why you would think, oh, hydrogen's the perfect source for energy. Right, so one reason is is just that it's another thing to the mix um, and is accessible in some ways. The other big one that, you know, fans of hydrogen fuel cells say is range. The advantage of hydrogen for cars, it comes with the comfort of range. Because when you look ordinarily at uh, battery electric vehicles, there's something which is called a range anxiety in that uh, with a full charge, you can have 80 to maybe 150 kilometers. So, but considering that on average, people travel 200, 300 or or so kilometers with a fuel cell car, you start by with a fuel tank, with a full tank, which would be four kilogram of hydrogen, and you are likely to get, let's say, between 500 and 600 kilometers. And then refueling is easy because it takes short time. Contrast that with an electric vehicle. You have a range of 90 kilometers, but when you charge, you can have an overnight charge, slow charge, because the fast charge 
reduces the life of a battery. So the major importance of hydrogen in transportation, it means that you are going to be contributing to reductions in emissions, and it is a desired future that would say the source of making hydrogen would have to be cleaner. So you are looking into hydrogen produced from renewable energy as opposed to where you are using the electricity that is generated by coal and then this electricity is used to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. All right, okay. This is sounding like a really good idea. Lower emission, longer range. Yes, but there are some just small, just some tiny problems. Uh, you already heard that currently the process that they use to get hydrogen does use electricity. And Dr. Mate says that it's a case of having developed the process of hydrogen fuel cells for now. And now we can work on getting cleaner hydrogen. Then there's this tiny hurdle. The cost is uh, prohibitively expensive for now because uh, you're not having that market traction. But uh, Toyota, they have a car called Toyota Mirai, which is uh, targeted to push the volumes of cars and subsequently reducing the cost. And uh, it's not only Toyota, Honda has some cars, Mitsubishi, Hyundai, so the model for now is people rent a car because they are close to a hydrogen fueling station. So we would say if a car were to be around a million rand, that is not a car that is going to be affordable to a lot of people, even though long term it is not going to be as expensive to maintain as the internal combustion engine car. We then envisage a future where you are going to have that cost being reduced to anywhere between 300 to 500 or even lower based on uh, the other models that are going to come into play. Okay, wait. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. The price has me too shook. A million. And he's like, oh no, we'll drop the cost to about maybe under 300,000 or so. Yeah. That's, that's a high price. Yeah, the science is cool, but I've got to say that is very, as he said, is very prohibitive at this, <laughs> at this point. It's good that the technology is out there, but I don't quite see it yet. There is, however, a general push towards cleaner cars, as we know, and that might bring the price down in general as governments, mm. etc., get behind this. In places like Germany and parts of Asia, you could start getting in on the train now and rent a hydrogen car as he said. He showed me this map actually of hydrogen refueling stations which is the other big thing here. There there are these refueling stations around the world. In Africa, nothing. No dots. Uh, so yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, so you can get uh, hydrogen in other ways, though. So, for instance, there are some mines in South Africa that already use hydrogen-based forklifts or underground locomotives, and these companies tend to bring in hydrogen from gas companies or create it themselves from steam, especially because that's usually not at the level of purity for cars. So it is already happening. Okay, that's that's pretty cool, though. And it makes sense. Like, in South Africa, the mining industry actually does make sense because... It is moving towards being greener. The mining industry 
gets a lot of backlash with their whole pollution of water and everything. So this is one good thing they mm. can say they're doing. The other big thing here, which makes it um, very logical for this to be in mines, is that the most or one of the most common catalysts in hydrogen cells is platinum, which is of course majority found in South Africa and Zimbabwe and mined here. So it's not, um, yeah, it's not uh, very surprising. But I think the take away here is the science is there mm. it's possible as dr Mate said but i see this as just being part of the mix the in future energy mix not a thing that will all be driving this next year that is true yeah you're still on the science side this is the science side with elma been a good show level full of cars one for the petrol heads except no petrol <laughs> definitely i mean now there's a little bit of hope not that now you're gonna go home and buy an electric car but i mean there is hope you know yeah so a big thank you to all of our guests on the show including dr mkulomate kolile fuku and winston yodan and the team today behind the scenes is production by bridget leperi Gloria Mabuza, Harmony Molefi, and Tech by Gutlanum Serame, as usual. The podcast is on vets.journalism.coza forward slash science or the science side on iTunes. You can also get us on social media as at VowFM on Facebook and on Twitter. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebachang Madisha. The Science Inside is produced by the Vets Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We'll be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on VowFM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.